Let's talk sleep. No matter what type of sleeper you are, there's a customized Helix sleep mattress that belongs underneath you. For the best sleep of your life, first go to helixsleep.com myths, take the two-minute sleep quiz, and get matched to a customized mattress. Ours is the Helix Midnight. We love it. Let's see what you get. Helix mattresses are shipped free, so you can try it risk-free for 100 nights, and when you love it, you can fall back on their nice 10-year warranty. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com myths. That's helixsleep.com myths for up to $200 off and two free pillows. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the start of our two-part finale to the Odyssey. We'll see that you can always count on the Olympians, except when they abandon you for a decade for no reason at all, and we'll see that Dionysus is still doing his podcast. The creature this week is either an evil witch who will eat you, or her nicer sister, who will just sink your ship. This is Myths and Legends, episode 237A, The Shape of Things to Come. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, the Trojan War happened. It took 10 years, but the king of Sparta, Menelaus, was able to retrieve his queen, Helen, and return home safely. Others weren't so lucky. Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, father of Telemachus, and husband of Penelope, who didn't even want to be part of the war in the first place, was one of those unlucky many who experienced some hardship on what should have been a quick cruise across the Aegean. Leaving Troy with hundreds of men, he came up against Cyclopes, monsters, drugs, hazards natural and supernatural, and, chiefly, the gods themselves, to be the sole survivor of his group. All this was because, to save his own life and the lives of his crew, they blinded the god of the sea's son, the Cyclops Polyphemus earning his ire. But everything comes to an end, and Odysseus's suffering was no exception. Guided by Athena, he found himself in the land of the Phaeacians, on what people think might be the island of Corfu, a seafaring utopia. Odysseus finally revealed himself after a tearful catharsis, and they replenished his Troy loot and sent him on one final voyage, the trip home to Ithaca. Look, bro, I always knew Odysseus was going to make it home. Poseidon, the god of the sea, said to his younger brother, Zeus, I mean, hey, hey, you said it. I respect that. I just wanted him to suffer every day for years on end for blinding my sweet, beautiful boy. Was that too much to ask? And how many times did you go visit your son? Zeus asked Poseidon. Really want to go down that road, father of the year? Poseidon asked as Hera entered the room. Zeus held up his hands. Truce. Okay. Look, he understood Poseidon was mad. But he couldn't put a mountain range in the ocean around Phaeacia just because they helped Odysseus get home. Boating is, like, so important to their culture. They have boats that can travel the known world and be back before dinner, and they are steered by thought. I mean, come on. You know what's important to my culture? Not being disrespected by humans giving other humans free rides, Poseidon said. Okay, well, that doesn't make sense. Tell you what, want to split the difference? Zeus asked. I turn the ship to stone, 
And if they don't freak out and sacrifice something to you, then we can talk about instantly landlocking their port city with a surprise mountain range. Poseidon was pouty. Fine. Fine what? Zeus asked. Fine, sir, Poseidon added. Zeus nodded. That's better. In Phaeacia, it went down pretty much as Zeus predicted. The Phaeacian's boat turned to stone and remained there in the harbor. The people sacrificed Poseidon and vowed never to be nice to strangers ever again, lest they earn the anger of the gods. There's actually a small, rocky island off of Corfu, one of the places thought to be the supposed location of Phaeacia. If you squint, and then squint more, and then close your eyes completely and imagine a boat, the island kind of looks like a boat. Odysseus scrambled to his feet. No, 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 not again. If you've been shipwrecked and waylaid as many times as Odysseus had in the past 10 years, it would probably trigger some anxiety to wake up alone, abandoned on an island, with no memory of how you got there. He reached for a sword, drew it, and circled the olive tree under which he awoke. Okay, time to take inventory. His inventory was gone. All the riches he had gotten from the Phaeacians to replace the riches he had sacked from Troy were at the bottom of the sea. Again, he was in a strange land, probably full of cyclopes or drugged-up guys or nymphs who would turn his friends to pigs if he had any left. Then, the sack of coins jangled at his feet. He knelt down and lifted up a big leaf. The gold was all here. All the riches the Phaeacians had given him had been hidden. Then, he looked to the bedroll he had been laid out on. With a soft pillow, he sheathed his sword. Usually, Waking up in a strange place doesn't mean you should panic and draw your sword against the inevitable monster onslaught, but given Odysseus's track record, it's a fairly reasonable reaction for him. This time, though, he had just been dropped off. He was trying to remember where he had been going on this leg of the trip, sleep and panic still leaving his eyes, when he heard someone clear their throat. He turned to see an elderly male traveler. Odysseus nodded. Nice to meet the man here on the road at night. He used his foot to cover his treasure hoard, and then turned to the man. Hey, um, if the man didn't mind, could he tell Odysseus where he was? Ithaca, the old man replied. For all of Odysseus's guile and subterfuge, for his desire to keep his guard up around the stranger, that word took his breath away. Ithaca. He was home. He looked to the hills on the horizon, studied the rocky bay. He didn't come to this part of the island often, and certainly had never seen it from this angle, but it was true. He was back in his homeland. Oh, cool. Never been to Ithaca before, Odysseus said with a grin. Really, the stranger replied. Yep, I'm from Crete. First time here. Yeah, I was dropped off my way across the sea. Probably need to find another ship. Where's the nearest port town? I don't know that information because I've never been here before, Odysseus said with a grin. Odysseus, come on, the stranger replied. Odysseus blinked, and the stranger was no longer an elderly man in traveling clothes, but a gray-eyed young woman standing in shining armor. Athena, 
Oh, hey, Athena, Odysseus said. Wow, cool, yeah, nice of you to show up. He said he hadn't seen her since what? She helped him at the fall of Troy? Athena smiled. She informed the king of Ithaca that she had helped him out with the Phaeacians and got him on the boat here. Oh, the last leg of the journey. Cool. Well, some other stuff happened in the time since. I know, Athena informed him. When you blind my cousin, Poseidon's sweet, giant, murderous baby he didn't really care about until he got hurt, you kind of make it hard for me to help you. Oh, was that helping? Because it kind of felt like I was being thrown from disaster to disaster, watching my friends die along the way. But it, whatever, we're good now. I'm home. You can go back to doing whatever it is you all do on Olympus. I'm going to go see my wife and son for the first time in 20 years. Athena chuckled. Yeah, he might still want her help. Odysseus said he'd been doing fine without it. And he could carry his bags of gold on his own. Thanks. You've been so helpful. And yeah, that was dripping with contempt. Athena sighed. Seriously, he should sit down. So, to summarize, there's a bunch of suitors in my house. Guys who want to force my wife into marriage. Instead of telling my son that I'm still alive and on my way home, you told him to take a dangerous sea voyage and he's sailing back into a trap. And if I show my face, these guys who want my kingdom will take a break from literally devouring my retirement fund to murder me and then take my wife by force. Is that about right? Odysseus asked. And then he sighed, setting the bag down. All right, cards on the table. He needed some help. Athena smiled a smug smile, but Odysseus let it go on account of wanting to see Penelope and Telemachus again. She said she would give him a disguise, and there was a nearby swineherd who had stayed loyal to him. Start there. In the meantime, they would hide his treasure in a nearby grotto and seal it so that only the gods would be able to open it. When they were done, Athena said she had to go. She had something she had to attend to, and it was fairly urgent. You just remembered that you have to make sure my son isn't murdered on his way home from Sparta. Odysseus asked. Athena chose not to answer that. Before she flew off into the sky, Odysseus stopped her. Uh, what about his disguise? She smiled. Look at your hands. Odysseus looked at his hands. They were wizened and cracked. He looked at his scraggly legs and felt his more modest physique under his cloak. Odysseus grinned. Oh yeah, I'm Odysseus. Odysseus, the swineherd said, looking the traveler up and down. That sounds a lot like Odysseus. Yeah, I know. No relation. I'm from Crete. I fought in the Trojan War. Want to hear about 80 more lines of backstory? So Odysseus told his character's backstory, did voices and everything. Pretty solid performance. When he finished up, he told the swineherd, you know, Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, dude was still alive. Don't do that, the swineherd said handing Odysseus a plate of pork. It's said that he grabbed two little pigs, killed them, skinned them, did all that, while explaining the situation on the island and how much he loved and missed Odysseus. It was like some kind of morbid Game of Thrones exposition dump. Odysseus chuckled. 
Why didn't you want to hear it? Their king was alive. He was coming home. In fact, Odysseus thought he might be closer than the swineherd thought. Notice the wink. I'm winking when I say that. The swineherd rolled his eyes. Yeah, right. He had been taken in by someone spreading lies early on. He and the queen and the prince had given too many free meals to too many men who could spin a good story about the whereabouts of Odysseus. But he knew where his king was. He was at the bottom of the sea, being picked clean by fish, or some sun-bleached skeleton on an island where he had been marooned. He wasn't coming back. The swineherd wanted Odysseus to know that he wasn't helping him for his story or his lies. He was helping him because that's what the gods wanted of him. Well, I respect that, Odysseus said. He still thought that Odysseus wasn't too far off, though. Once again, no relation. Telemachus felt his bed rock with a kick. Hey, wake up. He opened his eyes to see Athena standing over him. You gonna stay here forever in Sparta, drinking and hanging out with Menelaus and Nestor's son? Telemachus sat up in bed. You, you told me to come here. Now you're mad that I'm here? Athena thought about it. Oh, yeah. Well, now she was telling him to leave. But there were some changes to the route home. He shouldn't go back to the palace. Not immediately. He had to make another stop first. Telemachus and Nestor's son finished packing their chariot. They had a two-day overland trek across the southern part of the Peloponnese. It had been good, though. Telemachus had learned so much about his father. A proud, honorable man who always found his way out of a fight. Somewhere in the back of his mind, he hoped it was true. He hoped Odysseus was alive out there. Menelaus looked on the boys, clasping them both on the shoulders, and stepping back, putting his arm around Helen. For the first time since returning from the war, he felt happy. If these kids were the next generation, things were going to be all right. They would be better than their fathers. Unburdened by the past, they could venture forward. Menelaus took a deep breath. Maybe there had been a purpose to their pain, after all. As the horses moved forward and the chariot rolled toward the plains, Telemachus looked back toward the couple whose fight had rent the world. Helen and Menelaus were smiling, arm in arm. Telemachus wondered if he would ever see them again. But if he didn't, he knew that they were going to be okay. Telemachus looked back to the road ahead, to his own journey, to the work that would have to be done for him to be worthy of his father's name. <laughs> Unburdened by the past, purpose to their pain, Zeus laughed, watching the farewell from Olympus. Oh man, what sort of weak sauce, 21st century revisionist bull... Dad, we're recording, Dionysus said, and shook his head in frustration. But Zeus continued, you know what the purpose to their pain was in that war, right? Me. Me owning all of you in all those battles. That was good times. Clink, clink, Zeus held out his goblet. Ares clinked. That a boy, Zeus said, before turning to his other son, Dionysus, because, yeah, this is Olympus and you need to be that specific. You're still doing that blog thing? Podcast, Dionysus said. He wasn't hosting anymore, more producing now. 
They're wrapping up the Odyssey, and it was Menelaus and Helen's last scene on the show. Sue him for wanting to end on a little bit of pathos, tinged with nostalgia for characters we followed for years. This is a big day for the show. Dionysus looked to the clock. Oh, all right, uh, time for the first ad break. First ad break, Zeus asked, arching his eyebrows. Seems like kind of a lot of ads now. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's great that so many companies want to work with us. It's, it's an honor. And besides, we work really hard on the ads every week to make them engaging and interesting, Dionysus grinned. But saw that Zeus didn't really share his enthusiasm. You, you don't think it'll, like, alienate some listeners? Zeus asked. Take your Apple Podcasts rating down a few decimal points? I mean, I would hope that people understand that our family is supported completely from this podcast, and ads are important for us to keep doing this for years to come, Dionysus shrugged. And really, if people feel so strongly, and that's okay that they do, there's a membership thing where for less than a dollar an episode, they can get ad-free. Bored. I'm bored. Zeus interrupted. Again. Hermes. Nectar me. Zeus held out his goblet for more nectar of ambrosia. With a roll of his eyes, Dionysus queued up Carissa. Telemachus landed on Ithaca, at the port Athena had told him about. He avoided the rocks where the suitors laid in wait, ready to end the child of Odysseus and any threat to their future reign. You know when you're on a road trip and you see those signs saying that there's a prison nearby and that you shouldn't pick up hitchhikers? Well, Telemachus had never seen that sign. And as he was leaving the Peloponnese, a man approached, named Theoclymenus, saying that he was wanted for murdering a cousin. He was the grandson of a wizard. Could he get a ride? Telemachus shrugged. Why not? You know, except for all those things. Really, though, Telemachus needed a friend, an ally, his household had been compromised, corrupted. His only true ally was his mother, and a handful of servants who either kept their heads down or fled. There were dozens of armed, dangerous men who would have boarded his ship and stabbed him had he not taken the long way around the island. An outsider could be helpful. Oh, and also he could see the future, which was a nice plus. Benefits of being the grandson of a wizard, I guess. When they landed, Telemachus told the fugitive to head to the palace. He had to go look into a whole swineherd thing that Athena had told him about. Inside the hut, Odysseus and the swineherd pricked up their ears. The dogs were making noise, but not barking. They were panting, jumping, whining, and rolling. Whoever was approaching, they knew that person. Then, the door opened, and Odysseus sat rooted to the spot. It was him. Odysseus's boy, Telemachus. It didn't matter that Odysseus hadn't seen the man since he was a baby, screaming in the dirt after Palamedes put him down before Odysseus plowing salt into the field, trying to get out of the war. Odysseus would know his son no matter the age. He didn't even hear what Telemachus said. The boy was tall and strong, but in a different way than Odysseus in his generation. As he looked on Telemachus, his heart swelled with pride for the man his boy had grown into, and sorrow that he hadn't been there for any of it. The swineherd rushed from the house, headed to the palace to relay the message that Telemachus was home. Odysseus still sat there stunned. Then 
he noticed something as the door swung on its hinge. Out in the field, a form stood among the dogs and pigs, and all the animals shirked from it. It was the shining form of Athena. She looked at Odysseus and nodded. The door swung again, and she was gone. Odysseus, Odysseus said, distracted, as he stood and passed his son. Yeah, uh, no relation. Hey, I'll be right back. As he stood outside, his skin became taut. His big gray beard fell out and fluttered on the wind. His back straightened, and his hair was long and black again. Athena was going on and on about slaughtering suitors or something or other, and saying that she relished the thought of a battle, blah, blah, blah. Odysseus didn't hear any of it. Odysseus opened the door to the swineherd's shack. Telemachus looked at him, and then back down to the humble meal the swineherd had left to him, before doing a double-take at the figure in the doorway. Dad? Tears ran down Odysseus's cheek as the king of Ithaca nodded. Telemachus shook his head. No, no. Odysseus was dead. He can't do this again. If this is some trick of the gods... He grew up with messages from the war, how his father was alive and growing in renown and glory. The shadow was always there. Then, when he was 11, the war ended. His father was coming home. Then, then nothing. Nothing for 10 years. He had begun to hope again, after his talk with Menelaus, but he couldn't go through losing his father again. His mother needed him. His island needed him. Odysseus stepped forward, and one translation puts it beautifully and succinctly when he says, quote, I am that father whom your boyhood lacked and suffered pain for lack of. I am he. Then the story says that both men embraced and wept. Odysseus was home. One hundred and twenty men, Telemachus said, as he tore into the swineherd's bread. They ate the cattle. They drank the castle's wine like a river. They had male slaves run around in the field while they practiced their archery. And the female slaves, ugh. We need to see who among the servants have stayed loyal to us and who have shamed our house by laying with the suitors, Odysseus said, in a characterization that was unfair, to say the least. Telemachus had been gone for weeks, if not months by this point. Penelope was shut up in her room weaving all the time. To say that the servants, and especially slaves, were responsible for what happened to them when there's a power vacuum and no one to hold the suitors accountable is problematic, to say the least. These are violent men ready to kill the heir of the kingdom, to give the impression that the enslaved women had any recourse when literally no one is looking out for them kind of gives them an unfair shake. And by the way, I'm only harping on this so much because the story does. Back on track, Odysseus said that Athena had revealed the plan to him. With the first part, he would be in disguise. Again, as a beggar, he would hobble into town and make himself irresistible. For men like the suitors, if they saw someone with obvious weakness, they would attack. They were bullies. No matter how bad it looked, no matter how many hits to the ribs he took or arrows flew by him in the field, Telemachus was to fulfill his side of the plan. Odysseus would be okay. While Odysseus danced, spurred on by bow shots, Telemachus was to gather up all the spears, swords, arrows, all the weapons, store them away, 
If anyone stops him, he should mention that, with a bunch of suitors partying up all the time, he was worried that someone would kill themselves or someone else. They would see it as an implicit acceptance of them, draining the household of wine and food, and let him continue to do it. When their plan was clear, Odysseus embraced his son. Odysseus said he would come to town with a swineherd shortly after. Odysseus breathed. One more thing. Secrecy was critical. No one could know that he was here. Telemachus nodded, and no one would. Odysseus rested his hand on his son's shoulder, just so he was completely clear. No one. That includes Penelope. The boy was still. Oh. Odysseus said it was too soon. There were a myriad of reasons why, but Telemachus needed to trust him on this one. It wasn't time yet. Telemachus nodded. Like countless men in the Trojan War, he trusted his father to lead him here. Odysseus didn't mention that literally all those guys were dead, smiled, and thanked his son. Time to get to work. We'll see what happens when Odysseus finally returns to his family home, but that will be right after this. Odysseus, back in disguise and back on the road with the swineherd, walked toward the city and then took a sharp kick to the hip. Odysseus glared, raising his stick and debating whether or not he wanted to, quote, beat the life out of this man, but decided against the obvious murder. It just showed him how far his household had fallen. Certain people in the household, like the swineherd, the good, kind people who only wanted to do their jobs and live in peace, were underfoot. Men, like the one who just kicked Odysseus, Melanthius, weren't bad men, as Odysseus remembered them. They just followed. When Odysseus had led his household, they were reasonably respectful and honorable. In the vacuum, where the suitors were the de facto leaders, they took on those behaviors. They began to relish the cruelty. Melanthius was driving goats toward the suitors' camp so they could slaughter and eat them, and he saw the swineherd walking with a beggar. Because he can't just leave people to walk down the road in peace, Melanthius shouted curses at the pair, before driving his heel hard into the beggars, i.e. Odysseus' side, and moving on. Odysseus began to worry that there wasn't enough of his household left to save. His fear compounded as he approached the walls. He sighed. This was the home he had built. It was in tatters. Drunken shouts rose from the bonfire on the other side of the wall. Weeds snaked up and invaded the space between the stones. Heaps of dung were piled by the wall, obscured only by the swarm of flies. Then, Odysseus heard a whimper. The flies dissipated like a cloud. Argos? He had been a puppy when Odysseus left. He had shown such promise. The war arrived before the hound's first hunt. Odysseus remembered patting the dog on the head, telling him that he would be right back. As he looked on that aged hound that hobbled over from the dung pile, Odysseus thought that somehow the dog had understood him. Odysseus knelt down and stroked the dog's head, wiping away the dung. Why did they make him sleep on the dung? He could be a house dog. I've seen, like, terrible dogs treated better than this, Odysseus said, choking back tears. 
The more he spoke, the more the dog's tail wagged. The more Argos understood it was him, despite the disguise. Who's going to take care of him? The swineherd asked. The bad servants took up with the suitors, catering to them, and getting to reap the rewards of the household. The good either stayed cloistered with Penelope, fled into the country, or tried to keep their head down. No one wants to be seen caring for Odysseus's dog. Odysseus took some bread from his pack and handed it to the dog, who devoured it. This dog, who barely knew him when he left, had stayed more loyal than some of the people in his household. He patted Argos on the head and whispered that the dog could rest now. He was home. Argos, finally, closed his eyes in peace and died. A few minutes later, Odysseus, the beggar, bowed low before the lord of the palace, Telemachus, thanking the young man for his generous gift of bread and meat. Telemachus waved his hand and pointed out to the ruckus, the sounds of the suitors in the yard. The beggar would do well to go among the men outside to see what he could earn there. Telemachus met eyes with his father, who only nodded in obedience. Now you can go among the suitors, a voice, Athena, whispered in Odysseus's ear. See who deserves a violent death, and see who should maybe get a heads up on said violent death. Yes, I know, because it's the plan we talked about earlier, Odysseus said, as he held the bag open to the suitors, who were willing to give something to the beggar. Who are you talking to? A voice boomed out. The suitors parted. Antinous, the lead suitor, Odysseus bowed low. A thousand pardons. Antinous gripped him by the hair and wrenched him up. He asked the beggar a question. The beggar said nobody. He was talking to nobody. Oh, so you were talking to yourself, Antinous grinned, and then looked around at the suitors. Because he's nobody. The suitors laughed. Antinous smirked. Yeah, that one was a thinker. Odysseus spoke up. The man before him was right. He was nobody. He came here begging for alms. Did this man, this kingly man, this best of the group, have any despair? And then Odysseus launched into one of those backstories he pulls out of thin air, about how he had once been a soldier or something and lost a bunch of men on the Nile River, but Antinous wasn't having any of it. He cut Odysseus off, calling him a rat who came to nudge his table. At this, Odysseus rose. He supposed Antinous had more looks than heart. It was funny that he should criticize the beggar so much when he was here growing fat off a better man's table. A chorus of, Oh, went up as Odysseus turned to leave, his bag sagging low with meat and bread. Antinous, teeth pushed nearly to breaking with rage, gripped the stool next to him, stood and flung it at the beggar. It broke over Odysseus's back. The king of Ithaca in disguise didn't even wince. Odysseus turned to address the crowd. He was a poor man driven across the sea by hunger. If beggars interest the gods, if furies existed, then may Antinous meet death before his wedding day. Antinous told the beggar to leave. Now, or else these men would string him behind a horse and drag him until his back was peeled. The other men looked to Antinous as the beggar left. Yeesh, that yeah, they were actually not okay with that. Sometimes the gods come to men in disguise and ask for hospitality, and Zeus was a... They paused and looked up to the sky. A very stable and reasonable king of the gods who was always consistent and just. Was it really smart to risk it? 
Antonu shrugged it off. He didn't care. It was just a beggar. The swineherd emerged from the palace and found the beggar he had led there on the prince's orders. The suitors were all glaring at him. The swineherd cocked an eyebrow. Uh, so, how's it going? Odysseus nodded, as he expected. Well, it's going to start going a whole lot better now, the swineherd said. He had just come from the palace. The queen wanted to see him. A pang hit Odysseus's heart when he heard mention of Penelope. He allowed himself a glance up, but only a glance to see the shadow in the window. It was her. He wanted to see her so badly, but it wasn't time yet. He looked back to the group of suitors, now going about their business, eating his food, harassing his servants, living in his home. He still had things he needed to do. That's where we're going to leave it this week. Next week, we finish the story and close out on a whole era of Greek mythology. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of earthworm jerky, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that, while you can make jerky out of just about anything, worms have to be the absolute easiest. On a hot day after a big rain, they're already jerkified right down there on the sidewalk. So yeah, gross. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creatures this week are Black Annis and Gentle Annis. From England, Black Annis, and that's A-N-N-I-S, just to get out ahead of that one, we'll just call her Agnes as some versions do, has some initiative. She has pale blue skin, glowing eyes, and long sharp teeth and nails. And her nails are so strong that she hewed her home from solid stone with her fingernails and just set up shop. Her day job, of course, and I guess her night job too, is catching children and lambs who linger near her hills, the Dane Hills at twilight. She also likes to reach into windows with her long fingers and grab babies. But the addition of glass windows in recent years has made that more difficult. Her hobbies include catching children and livestock, exsanguinating them, and consuming them. Horrifying, of course. Also, pretty standard fare for the creepy creatures of the week. She steps it up a little bit by wearing human skin skirts, though, so I guess she's trying. I guess she likes cats, because people have tried to coax her out of her house with a dead cat soaked in aniseed. Not sure why that would work, and it never has, but it did lead to probably the nicest fare that ever started with a dead cat being dragged to tempt a witch out of her cave to have her explode in the sunlight. And that's a competitive category. Agnes is dead, though. I found a story as recent as 1942 that said that she was chasing some kids who were gathering sticks for a fire, and the kids panicked and dropped the sticks. Agnes tripped and fell over them, getting her shins all bloody, and had to go back home to put some salve on the wounds. You don't want to mess around with cuts in the Middle Ages or early modern period. Even if you're a semi-immortal witch, she caught up with the kids as they were near their house, and their fairy tale dad did what fairy tale dads do, and axed her in the face. This didn't kill her either, but she ran in a panic back to her cave, as I think any of us would do if we got an axe to the face. What finally did her in were the Christmas bells. As soon as she heard those bells, without the protection of her cave, she fell down dead. 
As for Gentle Annis, or Gentle Agnes, she's not all that gentle. Gentle is a mollifying term in her case. Used in the same way that you would say, nice dog, good doggy, to a dog that's snapping and growling at you. You want Gentle Agnes to be gentle, but it's probably not the case. I found in one place that she raises the winds, and while that probably means that she just brings them up to send them after ships because she's bored or something, I don't know, I'm choosing to believe that she, like, raises them as children and then sicks her wind babies on you. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.